Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is uh, regular host Aaron Percival aka Corporal Hicks and joining me is one of my squad mates, my uh, last Lobus, is uh, Mr. Adam Zeller aka Ridgetop on our forums. Hello again everyone. And if you're watching the YouTube version, you've already been spoiled. You can already see two new faces on either corner of the screen right now. And if you're listening to the audio version, you will hear their voices shortly. I'd like to welcome two very special community guests to the show. I'll go next to me. So uh, first up, we have uh, Sarah. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hey, Aaron. Who is not on the forums, but I've known her for a couple of years now on Twitter. She's always been one to ask me my thoughts on the books because I know she's been reading them as well so when it came to adding some extra voices to this episode I was like I know who I can ask I know <laughs> who will, might want to jump on and natter aliens with us thank you for joining us Sarah yeah no problem at all it's good to be here and uh, we'll we'll learn a little more about Sarah in a bit as well but let me introduce our fourth guest on the podcast on this episode he has been on the boards for four or five years i think at this point yeah is a uh, mr ziggs welcome ziggs hello it's a pleasure long time listener first time uh participant i always love hearing that long time listener first time caller <laughs> yeah oh it always uh, always gives me a tickle so yeah, Ziggs, is, uh, Ziggs has been on the boards for ages. He's always contributing towards the book and comic discussions as well. Yep, pretty much my favorite section is the literature section, so that's where I hang out. Well, the expanded universe is generally so fun. You know, it's it's a gr- great part of Valian and Predator because it fleshes it out so much. Sometimes in good ways, sometimes in not so good ways. And I think this this episode might prove to be a uh, an interesting one because I, I kind of have. I like to go into these not knowing what people think, what we think of them, but I have an idea of how everybody here reacted to this book, so I'm very curious to see how we're going to go on here. We are talking Aliens Vasquez by V. Castro. It came out towards the end of 2022. I forgot what year it was then. (laughs) With this uh, one of Titan's better covers, I'll be honest, I think. Definitely a step up from their normal ones, although I don't really like the shiny. Was this one of the artworks that was in the um, 40 year, was it the 40 year artwork anniversary? What was the latest one that came out? Because there was one from the top, wasn't there? I can't think what, what one you mean. You know, they brought out the, it was more recently. The, the printed in blood one? Yes. I don't, I don't think any of the Titan stuff's been in any of the, um, the art books. It's definitely a step up, but I, I wouldn't call it one of my favourite pieces of alien artwork, I'll be honest. But yeah, it's definitely a, a step up in Titans games. I still have yet to get a physical copy. I read it digitally myself. And you you were talking about getting a signed copy of that book before you even read it. That's true. And I still, I still would like to. It's just been off the radar a little bit. But yes, thank you for joining us, Sarah and Ziggs. And even though this isn't an interview podcast, a little tradition we like to have whenever we have new guests is talking about the first time you came across our favorite extraterrestrial monster, the alien. So, Sarah, why don't you start off and just let us know how you got started being a fan of aliens? 
Victoria? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the 80s, so it was kind of the perfect time to start watching the Aliens film. So I actually watched the second film first, and I think I might have even watched the third film before I watched the first one. Exactly the same for me. (laughs) And I think I'd, I'd already seen Terminator so, and I'd already seen Ghostbusters and I'd already seen a number of things. So, you know, I recognized uh, Hicks and I recognized Ripley, well, Sigourney and uh, Michael Bean, of course. So they were actors I was already familiar with in other films. So, yeah, they, it, it, and it started from there, really. And I'll be honest, I don't think really I started exploring the expanded universe until pro- maybe 10 years ago. I think I was just blissfully unaware of everything that was out there. And then suddenly, you know, it kind of came onto my horizon and I became obsessed, I think would be fair to say. And suddenly it's every graphic novel and every comic and every book. And it was kind of cool in that way because there was a lot of material there to kind of digest. And it it kept me going for a long time. But I think that from a why aliens perspective and what makes it different for me, uh, having started with the second film, obviously great cast, great script, great film. It was exactly, you know, the 80s film tropes, but just heightened. But for me, it was the it was the the creature itself. It's just impossible. It's impossible. Anything that you get past from it being incredibly scary, from the size of it, to its talons, to its tail, to its inner mandible, um, to acid for blood, so it's going to take you out as it dies. I just never seen anything like it. I don't think there's anything else out there that exists like it. And that probably is what was the biggest pull for me, even with a fantastic heroine such as Ripley. So that's me. How about you, Ziggs? I think I was probably about, I think it was right when Resurrection came out. So I think I was like maybe nine years old. And I saw like a behind the scenes, like making of on, I think like Discovery Channel or something like that. And my dad saw me how much I was like, whoa, that's super cool. And so he put on the first Alien for me. We watched it like right afterwards. And then I watched Aliens, Alien 3. And and much later, I finally saw Resurrection. And he also actually collected all the comics. So then I got into all the early comics, like as a 9, 10 year old. And just I read through pretty much all of them up to Kidnap. And that's when he stopped collecting because he didn't like the direction they were going at that time. That, that was... <laughs> That was towards the end of the Golden Age. It was. It was like 97, I think, when, when that one came out. So it was. there's only a couple more arcs that came out after that. Yeah, and I've just been a huge fan ever since, you know, and never must miss a book or a comic that releases or video game. But here's a question as well, then, for both of you before we, we get into this one. Favorite of the current run of Titans and least favorite? Favorite would still probably be uh, Cold Forge. Damn right. Least favorite, probably that Covenant Origins one. That one just didn't do it for me. <laughs> okay, no, that that's fair. I can understand that one. I still think this potential, and, and to be fair, that might be a topic that comes up talking about this one. I think there's room in the Expanded Universe for alienless alien books. Covenant Origins didn't didn't hit that mark for me, which was a shame because it was ADF. For God's sake, it was Andy Foster. But what, whatever, Sarah, go ahead. Favourite and least favourite? My favourite is Phalanx. Okay, another good shout, yeah. Oh, I just, yeah, that blew my socks off. And my least favourite is uh, Colony Colony. Uh, I mean, Colony War. <laughs> so so bad you forgot the name. No, it's it's there was no war in it. It was just a colony. Oh, okay. A colony, so Colony Colony. <laughs> oh, that is absolutely fair. You get 100% marks for that. I fucking hate that book so much. We so still much haven't done a proper book. podcast. On oh, that's that because here. I refuse. I refuse to do an episode on that. We it's mentioned it briefly crazy. on the Inferno's Fall podcast. But... It comes up every episode these days, <laughs> just as to the anger that goes on. 
Uh, Inferno's Four, I really liked. I really enjoyed Inferno's Four. I did. I thought that was. I thought that was good. But there's a line. So, Vasquez, I'll try and give a brief rundown of this book. There is no synopsis for me to read off the back of, but it won't be quite as detailed as uh, Lee's summary of EVP Armageddon. Oh, there is, yes, but I'll I'll still try and go through it a little bit. So it's separated into multiple parts. Five parts, yes, thank you, Ziggs. The first part of which is focused on Vasquez, as we know her from the films, Jeanette Vasquez. And it's very much her upbringing to the point where she is in, joins the Marines, basically. So it's her life, the difficulties her family faced, and then uh, her being orphaned and getting involved in a life of crime, getting wrongly sentenced and put in jail and then the thing that i think a lot of us know but we were talking about this off the air last time and uh, trying to remember where it came from was where that particular tidbit about the juvenile prison recruitment came from i only remember it from the aliens legacy website for the very very old dvd box set but I, i i had a quick flick through the scripts I didn't quite see it in there. I feel like it must have come from ADF's novelization, but I know I know it's existed before that website, and I know it's been a thing before this book. But yeah, so that that was the first part of the book, and then the rest of it all focuses on her twin children. And again, it goes through the same sort of story beats of of their upbringing and their life with their aunt and early age and the direction they wanted to to go in life and her daughter Leticia follows very much in Jeanette's footsteps and aims to become a marine although she goes very specifically special forces uh, the raiders as they go specifically in this book which I thought was to to start with I was like is that a shout to the fan group and then I looked into it and and raiders is a um, a thing it is a a genuine military thing not just this particular fan group of colonial marine raiders whereas Ramon her son joins the corporate world it's one of those evil Wayland yutani baddies. Bulk of it is around that sort of journey, is their development and growth until we get to the last part of the book, which is them heading off planet and getting stuck into classic aliens adventures where <laughs> experiments go awry as they do when upper management who have no clue stick their nose in and make all the wrong decisions and then things go wrong. That's very much classic aliens tale where it's a planet that's been specifically selected because it's off the it's off the beaten path. Nobody knows about it. They plump a secret facility there and then a not so secret facility there. And yeah, everything goes awry. Not a very specific summary because there's actually a lot of stuff in I think narratively in the book, there is a lot in there to go through, but that is the general story beats of it. I will read the synopsis anyway, just so you guys get the official official summary from Titan. So, even before the doomed mission to Hadley's Hope, Jeanette Vasquez had to fight to survive. Born to an immigrant family with a long military tradition, she looked up to the stars, but life pulled her back down to earth, first into a street gang, then prison. The colonial marines proved to be Vasquez's way out, a way that forced her to give up her twin children. Raised by Jeanette's sister Rosanna, those children, Letitia and Ramon, had been forced to discover their own ways to survive. Letitia by following her mother's path into the military, Ramon by embracing the corporate hierarchy of Wayland yutani Their paths converge on an unnamed world, which some 
some see as a potential utopia, while others would use it for highly secretive research. Regardless of what humans might have planned for it, however, xenomorphs will turn the planet into a living hell. Sarcastic, sexy and action-packed, Vasquez brings generational heritage into the alien universe in an explosive way. I never, I didn't really find the book sarcastic, I'm not going to lie. I would say I also didn't find it particularly sexy, but... <laughs> <laughs> there were some significant romance elements in the book, and we'll, we'll get into that. Ziggs, start us off. Uh, we like to do a, a very brief summary of, you know, a brief review of, of our impressions of the book. I would say this is the most character development we've gotten of any Aliens novel. So I, th I feel like it was more, I think it actually could have been marketed as a YA novel to a degree because it was kind of a coming of age story, more or less, between uh, Leticia and Ramon. So it was kind of, I felt like there's themes of greed kind of matched with the need to go for that generational wealth that was mentioned many times. So I felt that that was a theme, generational wealth, and Ramon kind of did whatever he could to get to it. But my main critique would be that there just wasn't enough aliens action. You know, I said that on the boards. It's really not to the last fifth of the book, I suppose, since it's five parts, that last, that fifth part, that's the main alien action. So I had fun with it. I would have preferred more aliens, but that's because that's what we're here for. But overall, you know, I like the book. I'd maybe give it a 6.57 out of 10. Adam, how did you feel? I thought this book was, was interesting. I, I agree with you, Ziggs. There wasn't enough aliens in this alien book. On my Kindle, I think it said about 40%, uh, sorry, sorry, 80% before we start seeing the first kind of alien conflict, which I, I also agree with you, Aaron. I feel like there's room for the alien expanded universe to explore stories without aliens. But when you have the big aliens title on the book, you expect a bit, a bit more, I think. But it was interesting seeing Jeanette Vasquez's younger years. And I wish we would have seen more of that because really not much of the book is focused on her. It's more so focused on her legacy, her children. And we go from their teenage years until pretty much their 30s, it would seem. I think it does fall into some contrivances in terms of the everyone's related kind of trope, which sometimes works with Amanda Ripley, which we were proven wrong about Aaron. But I don't know, the Vasquez family line is super unlucky, man. Between this and the comics with Cutter and Carmen Vasquez, it's like, man, this family just cannot catch a break from the aliens. I think next to the Ripley name and the, and the Ripley lineage, Vasquez has the most interactions she, with she aliens. She has more, honestly. I mean, maybe you could count Ripley's later descendant in... You um, yeah, yeah, you have to. River of Pain, right? No, it's Sea of Sorrows. Sea of Sorrows, that's right. I, always Although I wish they hadn't have given him the name Decker. I was like, but that just makes me think of Decker from Aliens. No, it sh should have been something different. And as far as the romance goes, uh, and we talked about this earlier too, Aaron, I did find it a bit fan fiction-y, and we'll, we'll get into that as well. So there were some problems there for me in terms of the corporate intrigue. And I feel like we could have gone into things a bit more with the military training, both with Jeanette Vasquez as well as Leticia Vasquez. But there were some things that did really well. I really liked the explorations into the Mexican culture. I thought all the Santa Muerte stuff was really interesting. Aaron, you and I both played a bit of Ghost Recon Wildlands. So I, there was a lot of that Santa Muerte imagery in that, that game. So it was cool to see that explored a bit more. So were there some things that the book did well? And I felt like the writing flowed really well. Like I could, I could get through it. It didn't feel like a chore. 
but there was just a lot of not what I'm looking for in an alien book, unfortunately. And that may be completely subjective, but I don't know if I'd recommend this to alien fans. Honestly, for me, I think it would, if I was being generous, maybe a six, but I think I'd probably be closer to a five, just pretty, pretty average for me. How about you, Sarah? I feel like um, I, there's a danger that I'm just going to repeat a lot of what's just already been said, because I am very much in agreement from uh, the richest of the characters. And I think, uh, to Zig's point, I completely agree. And then for me, it became much more lacking when that same time and effort, probably just through the length of the book, wasn't given to the other, the other characters, because they just became so forgettable because you'd spent so much time with the Letitias and the Ramones and Jeanette and Rosanna. So for the characters that we did know a lot about, I actually really liked them. There were some skeezy bits with Ramon that I thought were probably unnecessarily, but generally I liked his arc. It made sense that they would go in different directions. And up until kind of that part in the book where Letitia went her way and Ramon started going to his, I was, I was all in. I was really enjoying it. Great writing. The introduction of Brenda Moon, I thought she was good. Alinka One sounded very interesting as a planet. Well, the planet that it's set on and the research facility. And the research that they were doing, whether it be the, the tapeworms or the fasciitis, I was all in. I was really enjoying it. I can't say the same for the second half of the book or maybe the, the third part of it. But I think it's a I think it's a shame. I think there was a lot there. And I think if it had perhaps made some slightly different choices and everyone not being related, my um, criticisms and confusion around the vicar's timeline and how she exactly found this planet aside i didn't hate it but it's not it's not there for me so similar to ziggs if i was gonna say to give it a rating i would probably be at six and a half as well the things that i liked i really liked but unfortunately it felt like everything else was so much more lacking in the face of that okay that's fair and remember to bring up the the timeline stuff later sarah i when this book was first announced, my reaction was that gift from two guys, a girl in a pizza place of Ryan Reynolds pulling his face mask down going, but why? Because Vasquez has, yes, has run into the aliens. The, the Vasquez family has run into the aliens so many times. And with Aftermath being such a recent release as well, it was like last year, Adam, year before? It, it's recent. Yeah, I think it was 2021. It was Maybe. the first year that Marvel had the license. They released it within that first year. And Cutter was mentioned in the book, actually. Yes. Which I actually, I liked that somebody, that they'd mentioned Cutter, and I liked that they mentioned Carmen, who is her younger sister from Aliens, Clone, and Marines. But those were definitely additions that came about from consultants. I could totally tell that, because they barely warranted any mention throughout most of this. Although uh, Cutter's parents did get a bit more of a focus later on, which was like a very small focus, but it, it was a, fleshed out a bit more in terms of relationships later on, which was nice. But yeah, I was like, the book had to convince me to start with. I went into this one not thinking that it, I was going to really enjoy it. I didn't think I'd enjoy the um, Jeanette's early stuff, and I didn't think I would enjoy another Vasquez family alien feud. The book really surprised me because I fucking loved the Jeanette stuff. I really, really enjoyed the first part of this book detailing Jeanette's background and the events that led to her joining the Clone and Marines. You know, there's some issues along the way. I felt like the COVID analogy was maybe a bit too raw, or maybe I'm just a bit too sick of having those analogies at the minute. And the problem I have throughout the book... And I think is my main issue with the book is that it, it always feels contemporary. Never quite feels like a book set in, you know, a hundred years into the future. It could it could have done more with that. It could have been more especially given how the book goes later on. 
where it's a lot of, with both Jeanette and Letitia, it's a lot of boot camp. It's a lot of training. It could have gone a bit more Starship Troopers in that regards. And I'm talking the book, not the film. It could have gone a bit more future feel there. So that was a big problem I had with it going throughout the book. But I really enjoyed that backstory. I really enjoyed Jeanette's journey and her being innocent. You know, that is never something I would have thought of. I didn't expect it. And I looked into it later. You know, she has the the eye drop tattoo. I think many people, the assumption is that's a tattoo for she's killed somebody. That's a murderer's tattoo. But there's other meanings for it as well. And that is simply incarceration. So either way, you know, it works. She has been incarcerated. She was in prison. I loved that part of the book. I, I loved all her journey. It got the reactions from me that it intended. You know, I was genuinely angry <laughs> when all the stuff was happening to her about the forced sterilization and, and giving her kids up and stuff like that, you know, uh, because there is a lot of political commentary in this yeah. book. Police misconduct as well. Yeah, especially early on, you know, the gang culture and women's rights, because how the fuck is that still a thing? Because that's came back around again, didn't it, in the States recently? Autonomy over the female body. So it got the reactions it wanted from me, and I, I was genuinely angry at the judge in the book. So I loved that. I would have loved far more of Jeanette in this, because I didn't really like Letitia and Ramon. I didn't find them massively interesting characters. Because it, it felt like it was repeating a bit of Jeanette's journey. And that's very specific because Letitia is following in her footsteps. But it didn't feel unique. I felt like I'd already had some of this in the book. And I started to get a bit bored because it didn't feel aliens. And I don't mean that in the sense that there weren't aliens in it. It just never felt like anything other than it could have been some other franchise. It could have been some generic sci-fi military thing. And that's the feel that the bulk of the book has for me. And again, a lot of that's to do with the contemporaneous of it, but it's also to do with it just didn't feel aliens to me. Brenda Moon, I loved. I really enjoyed a lot of Brenda Moon's introduction and the interludes with her in between, because that is where the book did feel aliens. And she was also an interesting character because she was one of those mad scientists who wasn't mad and had her head screwed on. And her protocols with the aliens were reasonable and worked until till Vickers shows up and not Vickers. Utani. Utani shows up and fucks it all over because upper management never fucking knows what they're doing. So that was really cool. And I actually really liked those bits with uh, Dr. Moon and, and the alien actual experiments in the book. You know, when the, the alien virus mold thing came up, I was like, oh, Labyrinth, this is a Labyrinth reference. Yes. So all that sort of stuff I was really into and like the evolution that Brenda Moon thought the Queen was going through where they, I thought it was brilliant. They cut off all the limbs. They cut off half a face. They cut a tongue out and injected these the the virus the mold stuff into the queen's head into like time capsules i was like this is really good this is interesting i really like this stuff but yes yeah, the the bulk of the book i didn't really enjoy and then the last fifth when they go to a, actually leave earth <laughs> and go somewhere uh, somewhere in space it was all very rushed and confusing i think at a lot of points which was a shame so i didn't hate the book it didn't offend me like Colony Wars did. Colony Wars legitimately offended me. I was just kind of a bit ambivalent towards this one. It, it's one of the ones where it's like, yes, there's things in it that I really like and things I found really interesting, but I would have liked them to have been the focus of their own thing. So it was a bit of a miss for me. I would probably say a five out of 10. 2022 wasn't a very good Titan year for me, I'll be honest. I only liked about half of what came out. 
I mean, part of that comes down to our personal expectations too. I mean, V Castro is a solid writer. Like she writes well. I thought the book flowed nicely and as a creative, yeah, not everything lands the same. So yeah, I, I always, it is kind of a bummer when we don't like stuff, but that's just how it goes in the expanded universe sometimes. And I'm, I'm with you, Aaron. Like I didn't dislike it. Like I didn't find it offensive. I'm, I wasn't like, this is terrible. It was just kind of like, eh, well, that was an alien book. Well, kind of an alien book. Yeah, I think I saw someone someone else was talking about it. They were talking about it feels like it could or should have been two two books. It, there's two books worth of material in there. And I think that there, in some ways, I would agree with that because I think there's so much that could have gone into and been explored more, like her time when she was going through training, everything that you just talked about, Aaron. The writing itself was excellent, the time actually on the planet. But would I wanted to have read two books on it? I'm not sure whether I actually would have read like Vasquez part one and Vasquez part two. So I think yeah. maybe it's out differently, but I, I don't know whether I could have read two on it. I just think it should have been more focused on Jeanette because mm-hmm. I, I agree with you on that as well, Aaron. I thought the beginning part, her incarceration, her life as a youth in this gang group, was really interesting. And her military training was just kind of brushed over rather briefly. Vasquez is a smart gunner. Like, let's talk about that a little bit, because there was a whole like part of uh, her pregnancy where she couldn't train and she well, she couldn't train physically. So she was doing only firearm training. I'm like, let's get into that a little bit. And that can kind of bring us to this futuristic setting. Because again, you're right, Aaron, this felt very contemporary. They were all referencing modern songs, a lot of modern social commentary. That was the biggest, I think, part of why the book felt contemporary. There was one piece of conceit, I think, early on. Maybe it was was it when they were in the car with the gang members where they're talking about old or classic rap music. I think that was the only only time they ever referenced any of the music being oldies, classics, you know, that kind of thing. Every other time it was just the name of the song, the artist. Apparently Vasquez has a real thing for Bruce Springsteen, was it? You know, Dan- Dancing in the Dark, was that the song that they referenced multiple yeah. times? Then it's it's things like phones and watches. It, this is going to sound like a real stupid nitpicky complaint. But that dates that dates it in the terminology of the now. It's a simple thing. You know, you don't call it a phone. You you call it something different. Well, the isolation novelization was calling them like, oh, I forget, I forget what they were calling it. But they, it was essentially the same idea. But it was it was pads or, or terminals or something like that. You know, you disguise the technology in different language to give it a feel of the not now. This is a problem sort of with alien in general anyway, yeah, because it's joking. retro it's retro futurism. You can still do it. We've seen We've seen Ripley with the clunky watch. So they have the smartwatches. It felt as though a lot of the setting of the book early on, obviously before they go onto different planets, a lot of it was felt like it was intentionally timeless almost. You know, the twins go and live on a ranch. It's in the middle of nowhere. There's no flying cars. There's no talk about atmospheric processes or anything else. They're literally living on a... It's, it's, it, there is a timeless quality to it. And, you know, the artists that we're talking about, I would say pretty timeless as well. And if I think about all the stuff that they're talking about, which is when they talk about all history and her feeling, though, you know, Jeanette feeling as though her ancestors are with her and she feels so tied to the past. I jumped to the conclusion that it was intentional within this book. That's what I took 
done it. That's an interesting thought because I hadn't read it that way. They did mention Peter Wayland uh, kind of combating climate change at one point in the book. So it was mentioned. And then I think they also kind of touched on that. The uh, was name Robert Boone. He, he was kind of self-sustaining with his with his millionaire million acre or he was like a millionaire with the big horse farm. So I think I think that kind of glossed over why it felt so modern, at least in terms of them growing up in that wide open space. Because I know when I think of futures, I think of like congested cities with tons of smog and stuff. So she made some effort to, I think, address those things. Though, like, I, I agree with Hicks that it was just a bit too modern, especially with the constant reference of the, of the songs. I agree with Alien, even in the far future, you don't have to go like super dystopian. And I think some bits of the expanded universe have made that mistake. They go too in the direction of like Blade Runner, where it's too bleak, which Alien has that aspect of dystopianism, but it's not like taken to the extreme like we see in other sci-fi franchises. At least I've never gotten that impression. But yeah, uh, it's always going back to your point, Aaron, about the aesthetics of of Alien and the retro futurism. It's always a weird tug of war between the clunky retro sci-fi stuff of the originals and making it feel grounded in in the future and relatable for us now. Like you see with games like Alien Isolation, you have tape players, devices and things like that. And then with Alien Covenant, you have tablets, you know, you have an iPad. The lore actually goes into it, though, in isolation, if I remember rightly. Does it? Just because it's such an old station? The RPG does. The RPG they are, does. Okay. Some, yeah. It, it was to explain like the reliability of, of some of the retro sort of technology. Yeah, the non-hackability. Oh, gotcha. Can't hack tapes. You know what? That's a great thing about the uh, the RPG, is, is, is its intent to reconcile a lot of those disparities around the lore and the franchise and um, the, the story, the overarching stories going on. Anyway, not to diverge, Adam, sorry, you were saying. Oh, just that it's like, I don't know, it's for me, it's the right way to do it is somewhere in the middle. Like we want something that seems futuristic from where we are now. And again, we see that with the alien prequels, like how much more advanced those ships are. And yeah, you can just be like, well, these are just more advanced ships. And it's like, mm, come on. It's just because it's a sci-fi movie that we're making now instead of in the 70s or in the 80s. But you do want to you do want to kind of meet in the middle. So it kind of is a bit cohesive in the lore. I do think all the, the prequel stuff can be explained away very nicely because yes, it is a Nostromo was a truck, <laughs> a dirty beat down old worn down truck. And then it's the flagship scientific thing. And a yeah, colony ships have ipads today man like <laughs> there's still lots of beat down vehicles going around that's true but yeah uh, Ziggs, Ziggs was spot on as well you know referencing uh, all the climate change stuff but i i feel like the book would have done a better job of not feeling so contemporary if it had contrasted you know we have a lot of this book that spent early part of the book that spent on this ranch it is this westerny kind of idyllic american kind of thing but we don't get this was the early, the early book was set in la wasn't it you know that is notoriously one of america's most disgusting cities for pollution oh, and stuff not, like that it's not that bad go go to la first it has its good areas and its bad areas well you know what i mean though it didn't contrast that city feel to this, you know, idyllic ranch life. You know, it never felt in the future. It never felt part of this this world as Alien had established it. I mean, why the hell did training not take place on another planet, for God's sakes? You know, why couldn't you have popped some of it on the moon or Mars or something like that just to make it put some sci-fi in your sci-fi? Well, they kept setting up this thing during Jeanette's military training. They were like, there's this big warehouse, which is where all the space training takes place. And we never, like... 
she mentions it twice and we never get to see in there and we never get to hear about her training for space expeditions. And I'm like, that would have made a really interesting part. And even her, you know, we see the, the very end of her life in the scene in aliens where she and Gorman sacrifice themselves to, to give the others a chance. But I'm like, I would have liked to have seen more of her perspective and, and mm. inner dialogue throughout aliens. Like we don't have to go through the whole story of that beat for beat, but just to see a little bit more of that, I feel like it should have been balanced more between her and her kids rather than mostly focused on her kids. Another weird thing with the alien franchise, that's like a nitpicky fan thing is the time of space travel for me anyway, because uh, if you remember with the fire and stone comic, it took them how long. And this was like after aliens, it took them more than two years to get to LV223. And I'm like, well, we know from aliens, it only takes a few weeks at this time because the ships have gotten faster. And in this book, which takes place post alien three, it takes them five years to get to this planet, which I guess Brenda moon is just killing aliens before they become adults the entire time. So it doesn't like, there seems no logical time gap there. It's just like, Oh, five years have passed and we've had to say goodbye to our aunt now, but I'm like ships in the alien universe at this time, it should be weeks to maybe a couple months. Right. Well, we don't know how far it is. I will give it that conceit, you know. The idea is that this planet is supposed to be unknown to everybody, you know, so far off the beaten track and that kind of thing. So that's a conceit I will give it. I dated a guy in university who joined the army and trained to be in the Marines and spent all of his time in a field in Wales for two years, never saw any active service, and then came back out of the Marines again. So I don't know, going off a different planet and everything else, maybe that, maybe this is true to form. It's all purely about my complaint of it never feeling aliens or futuristic. I, I I completely own up to that. Like even when they're traveling on the ship, we're not really the spaceship is not really described much at all. Even when the opportunities are right there, like let's nerd out a little bit. Like let's talk about the weaponry. Let's let's do the world building, as you say, Aaron. Yeah, it's just not really gone into. I mean, I get this is a character driven story. We're focusing on this family here, but give those fans a little something, you know, that that makes us feel like we're in this world. The the book is quite clearly a character book. You know, that is where V's interest lies. It is in Ramon. It is in Letitia. It is in Jeanette. Yeah, I understand that. But, you know, you are also still in a franchise. You are still in a, a world that you need to get into. Because we're talking about, like, feeling more futuristic with the military. That very first chapter with Jeanette fighting a combat android as, like, her test to, to get into the Marines, I really liked that part. Yeah, that, that is like the most futuristic it feels, isn't it, actually, really? Yeah. That was a cool moment. You know, that's something I also want to ask you guys about is how did you feel about Jeanette's revised... I say revised. This version of Jeanette's backstory in here, you know, did you also have that same sort of reaction I did of, do I really need this going into it? And and did it work for you? I think I I also experienced that, but... I don't know. I, I generally tend to set my expectations low for <laughs> for any uh, EU content. That's a bit of a depressing way to start it off. There's some absolute <laughs> crackers, and you know this, Mr. Cold Forge, favorite book. That, therefore, I can't be disappointed if it's bad. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect, so I hadn't read the synopsis. I hadn't really... I knew there was the new book coming out, but it felt as if there was a flurry of titles and comics and news all kind of happening at the same time. 
and and rather than get if I'm going to get like five through the door within a couple of months, I don't want to be more excited about one than the others because then you know I'm just reading one for the sake of it whilst I'm waiting. So I didn't look into it. I didn't spend any time reading what it was going to be about. I mean, by the name alone, it kind of had a vibe. So going into it, the way it started, Ziggs, you're 100% correct. I wish I'd have said that. Um, it was absolutely it was an amazing start. Introduced Drake early. I was really glad because it kind of got that out of the way. You knew that. He didn't know whether he was going to be a main part of it, but at least, he, you know, because when she came out, I think he was, was he the next one going in? So he got that out of the way quickly, um, that she was already associated with him. So part of me was like, oh, are we going to see the first time they meet? But it's okay. It's okay we didn't. So I think my lack of expectation probably helped because I I just really appreciated everything we've got. And 100% I could have read more. I could have read more, but I don't know whether that might have bored me eventually. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad they they had the kids, albeit as horrendous um, as her ex- Jeanette's experience was. Just didn't know what to expect, really. We kind of talked about this one off the air last time as well, and there was a bit of a discussion around it on some of the social media, some of the forums, and stuff like that. And it was this idea that Jeanette had had kids. You know, I, I think she's become a bit of a gay icon over the years, and the assumption was that she was likewise gay. So early on, you know, the reaction was, why the fuck has Jeanette got kids? How did you feel about the way this book sort of handled that and handled her sexuality? Well, I think, I mean, from my perspective, and I mean, we talked about this before and it was it was news to me that there was an interview in which the actress turned around and said, I, I played her deliberately am- unambiguous. So you weren't sure. And when I was growing up, I was described as a tomboy, which probably isn't going to be a huge shock to everybody because I'd rather be climbing trees and playing football than the things that girls would, would say that they enjoyed doing. And for a long time, there was a lot of people who made assumptions that I was, you know, I was gay or I was bi or I was anything else. So I think that through your life, you find yourself and, you know, whatever you settle on and you feel comfortable with. I think it's great that you find something and you settle on it and you find comfortable with it. But I never took from the film or anything subsequently that uh, Vasquez was gay. So when, you know, that was explored, when she met somebody that she, you know, she she really identified with and got on with, I can understand you feeling that about, you know, somebody of the same sex. I don't think that was that much of a shock. And then, of course, she came out and, and she found somebody else. So I think for me, it was fluid enough not to land on anything um, and also be bold enough to say that, you know, of a certain age, you know, people explore. I think for me, you are attracted to who you're attracted to, no matter what body or colour skin or anything else that they come in. So I was glad that it stayed ambiguous, to be honest, and never really, you know, put a stamp on she is or she isn't. I think the actress Jeanette Goldstein had a pretty good quote about it saying, with Vasquez, I never said she was straight or gay because to her it was nobody's business. But I mean, the book is is pretty much showing that she's at least bi-curious, if not bisexual. But it, it is good to see some of that representation as well, you know. So I, I felt it handled her her sexuality pretty well. Yeah, and her cellmate's name was Daisy Paxton. A little shout out there. I know Hicks loves those. <laughs> what what is that in reference to? Bill Paxton. Oh right. Okay. Okay. Good God at him. Okay, well, I get it now. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, this ain't happening, man. This can't be happening, man. This isn't happening. I was just thinking as well, I didn't finish my thought because I just stopped talking. One of the things as well that I thought was interesting is how they approached the kids. Well, I think there's at one point um, Vasquez turns around and says, I would have a termination if it wasn't for the fact that I'm never going to get 
the choice again. Do you know what I mean? So that was almost, and I thought that was quite, and helped to keep it ambiguous as to who she would be more attracted to or what her sexuality is, because it was more, well, if they're going to take it away and I've got the opportunity now, I'll do it, which felt very much in line with her character. And I thought that was both a, a heartbreaking and also it felt quite true to, to Vasquez herself for the decision that she made. So. I'm one of these ones that had always, because of her status as this gay icon, you know, my initial reaction was, what? I thought she was gay. You know, the way the book handles it, I really liked, you know, the the, the fluidity, the, the curiousness and the attraction to who you're attracted to. You know, I thought it worked really well to set up this, you know, the later part of the book and give her these these children. That might have been why some of the other lore had never really gone that way, because they had also focused on the idea that she didn't have children. You know, it was it was a brother's. It was a sister, sorry, you know, and, and then other relations. So I, I really liked the way it dealt with it, actually. I thought it felt very natural and I thought it worked very well. And like you said, Sarah, you know, that whole bit about, God, it really did make me angry, that part of the book, the forced sterilization. But the the way she responded to it with, if I had the choice in the future, I know what I'd do now. Because at that time, she was very committed to what she was doing. You know, she was committed to being a Marine and obviously recognized that her actions while on, you know, you know, she didn't set out to get pregnant, did she? You know, it wasn't an intentional sabotage of her career. And, and what made it extra gross was that they also, so not only were they going to... She obviously, she couldn't raise the children. She had to give them away straight away after birth. She was going to be sterilised. They were also taking all of her womb and all of her eggs and sending them off to some scientific research base. I mean, it's just stacking one up after the other. <laughs> it's horrible. It's awful. V really went for it there. And to be fair, the, the the little story nerd part of me here was also like, is that Thomas Spears kind of set up? Which I was kind of like, oh, cool. But then it was also like, no. How did you guys feel about the the way the social commentary was handled in this one? Because like I said in my Colonial Marines review, not Colonial Marines, Colony Wars review, sci-fi will always be a place for social commentary. It's just part of the fabric of the genre. Colony Wars did it with the subtlety of a brick in the face. And I think some of this was a bit too overt. But in general, how did you guys feel about, about the social commentary? Did it, did it pull you out? Did it work within the narrative? I'm kind of with you, Aaron, in that I agree that sci-fi is a great place for social commentary. I just felt there was a bit too many things in a row that felt very contemporary. Like we're 180 years into the future. We can explore politics. We can explore social issues for sure. And those can be relatable to our current times. But when they feel a bit too reflective of our current times, it can kind of pull you out of it a little bit. Yeah, one of the parts I liked was uh, when there is a synthetic as a as a cop, and it was like, you cannot, I, I have no bias, do not try to influence my decision. So I thought that was, that part was handled well. Yeah, that seems like it was a very deliberate evolution of the earlier part of, of the story with Jeanette and how she was very much dealing with one of those, the corrupt cops, you know, the, the racial bias kind of way that has come out a lot recently. And and to then evolve it with, with the synthetic stuff was, uh, I think, a very nice touch. And I think one of those reasonable, it felt natural. It felt like a natural flow of that technology, of that purpose, of, of that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I did think that worked really well. Sarah, any thoughts on that one? I feel as if I'm probably not the best person to give commentary as I've read a very sheltered and lucky life. But at the same time, I think from my perspective, I think it did it well enough to show that life would never have been easy for Vasquez, if that makes sense. Just through the world that we're growing up in, 
the world that's around her and the same kind of stereotypes and limited opportunities that are available to people. And I think that can probably be true of anybody from a particular economic status, maybe, you know, the opportunities that are available. uh, And therefore, her only way out was to join the Marines, which is sign up and give your life away. And then part of that as well is giving up the opportunity to have children. And so all of that feels as realistic for today as it would be in the future and it kind of makes me feel a little bit sad that that's where we could still be because you know you would hope that we would have all evolved beyond that but broadly speaking I think they tipped their hat enough to it without really laboring it on and just banging and banging away because that would have been on top of the sterilization and everything else I think I would have probably found that quite exhausting to turn around and read that that's a fair word to use actually exhausting because I do think a lot of the commentary was very early on in that Jeanette part of the book don't get me wrong it's still there in in Letitia's Letitia's journey you know there's assumptions and stereotypes made early on in her teenage years that it doesn't it doesn't pile it on as it goes it feels the thickest in Jeanette's story because there's a lot going off there with the COVID stuff with the the police yeah. brutality stuff and then the gang culture kind of stuff so it does feel thickest there I think Leticia does um, encounter it later, of course. So when she goes to become a raider and it's just her and, oh gosh, what's her name? A Hass. And basically she gets told, you're never going to get it because she's the daughter of somebody. Yeah. But it's not as heavy as it yeah. could have been if, as it was earlier, I guess. That, 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 that was nepotism. Is, yeah. Is what that uh, so another piece of social commentary. Yeah. yeah. With the nepotism, which we see a lot of these days, so... I think the only thing that I really didn't like in terms of the the social commentary was the COVID stuff because it just felt one thing too many. I've just I've just suffered through this for the last three years. You know, give give me a break. I don't need another outbreak uh, of um, very generic flesh eating bacteria. To be fair, well, it does that, come. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It, it does come into play in the book in terms of how they're yeah. researching the aliens. But yeah, it did feel very COVID how they initially presented yeah. it. Especially like with with Rosanna, you know, and and the treatment of the doctors and their, you know, how exhausted and everything they were. It was just it was just a a few too many things piled on in that part of the book. I I mean, I would say at the same time, though, just to give just to give our author a bit of a break, which is that I don't know about you lot, but I casually scribble stories and novellas. I think, Aaron, I've mentioned to you before, I'm trying to figure out how I can fit werewolves into the alien expanded universe at the moment. I think I got it. So I like to scribble things down, but I find that quite cathartic. So I imagine that this was being written when we were in the throes and feeling the, you know, a lot of the pain. So I almost would have been surprised if it hadn't found its way in. Do I think the book needed it? No, I don't. I don't think, to your point, I don't think it added anything to it. But at the same time, I'd have almost been surprised of pretty much any book that's come out and been written in the last three years that isn't somebody expressing their pain and difficulty that they've been through through that through that. I, I can forgive no, I mean, it. It's, well. it's, it's, it's fair. It's an entirely fair point, but it also it's also one of those things that contemporizes it because it's so very obviously COVID. But it's also like, like you say, all these people, all these creatives, all these authors are going through it, went through it. And it's like, we've gone through it ourselves. Now it's all coming out in the books after the fact. It's like, give us a fucking break. <laughs> Let's have some different plots and some different narratives going off, off here. 
I get what you mean, Sarah. I mean, it's it's very common among creatives to want to put themselves in, into their work. But I also agree with you, Aaron. It just felt like too many contemporary social issues. And like, I want to see what kind of social issues we have in the far future, which could be very different than now, but also somewhat relatable at the same time. And it was kind of like the colony war with the three world exit and everything like that. It's like, this just feels too close to what we're dealing with right now. I think, Sarah, I mean, you and Adam actually mentioned the the culture, the Mexican culture in the book. I was really interested in a lot of the perspective that came up through Letitia and, and Jeanette and Rosanna as well. You know, and it even, even went as far into some of the architectural stuff with the pyramid that Ramon built because it was very obviously called out as like one of the step pyramids of Aztec kind of stuff. So I really, I really enjoyed that. That is one of the things I do really like about characters is when we get these other cultural perspectives and sort of like tints on the alien. You know, I might not have been so convinced with her imagining the aliens in the vision part of the book, but to later on, you know, that would have been a nice way to sort of shine on the alien, you know, with with the cultural background. So that was that was something I really did actually quite enjoy. What about you guys? I like that part a lot. Yeah, because they they really put in a lot of history, I guess you could say, Mex- Mexican American history. You know, you had the soldaderas, which are like a were a f- female fighting force during the Mexican Revolution. So that that was brought up again and again. You kind of had Rosanna, and she she was interested in kind of the more what would be, I guess, pagan aspects of Mexican culture and. You know, that, that happened a long time ago as, you know, Spain brought Catholicism to the to the Americas and a lot of the indigenous people at that time still tried to keep some of their their beliefs ingrained with the, with the with the new Catholicism beliefs. And that's actually where Santa Muerta kind of comes from. It's kind of a combination of Mother Mary and kind of a Mother Earth or slash death god, you know. So yeah, that that part was really fun to me. Do you remember where, where she goes into like the like a vision quest in the in the hut? They pretty much describe the AVP pyramid scene, but with engineers. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. It's like a sweat lodge ceremony kind of thing. But she was in like a full kind of trip, I guess. Like I was like, did they give her something or is that just she's just sweating that hard that you're seeing things at that point? But I, I agree. I think that was one of the strongest parts of the book was exploring some of the, the Mexican culture with both Jeanette and then her sister and raising these kids. Uh, and we just see a lot of that throughout the book. And in both Jeanette's and Leticia's inner dialogue, uh, less so with Ramon, I think. I think he's more just kind of concerned about power than, than cultural things. Although I think he still at the same time does have some cultural re- reflections. It, it might not have been strictly cultural, but it was family. You know, yeah. it was it was about providing for the Vasquez that came down the line. It was about giving the name the same sort of power that Waylon does or Utani does or Vickers does. And, it, you know, there was some other name drops in here as well. Um, I'm, I'm going to quiz first. Did, did we pick up on these other potential alien name drops, family name drops? Hmm. There was a, I think, Luke Grant. There's one. Harvard Grant Corporation. What what was his um, Mrs.'s surname, though? That's cheating, Ziggs. I see you <laughs> reaching for the book. She was a Kramer. I was going to say, I think it's Kramer, yeah. From the Kramer rival, right? Well, how intentional that was, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, we had a Grant and a Kramer in here, and I immediately thought of, of the Grant Corporation, the Kramer rifle. I don't think it was intentional, but you know, it, it speaks to the same theme, perhaps, uh, however unintentionally, of the power behind a name, the power behind a family name. So he, he was interested in that regard. 
I did find it interesting how Ramon and Leticia, growing up as siblings, they really didn't get along much. But then as they matured after their college years, Ramon kind of admitted he had not been great with his sister and that he wanted to be better. And you see that sometimes with family that initially doesn't get along and then they they kind of realize that and they try and do better and they try and form more solidarity. I've experienced that personally with with my extended family. That was something I thought the book handled really well. What I think was handled less well was that they were both dating Waylon Yutani family members. I'm like, that is one wild coincidence, right? With Ramon dating a Yutani and Leticia dating a, a Vickers, or I guess unofficial Wayland uh, would be a Vickers. And that was uh, interesting seeing those power dynamics. I mean, even in that little Alien Isolation sequel game we played, Aaron Blackout, you have a Yutani there and you have to think if these family names are so powerful because of this mega corporation, then yeah, any of their descendants would want to try and maintain that name and have some celebrity of even having that name. So that was kind of interesting to see, but just some of their scheming like uh, this kid is still in Harvard and he gets invited to the Wayland headquarters and this dude is like, hey, you want to bump? So anyway, we're just going to hand you like all the information to like this top secret alien research project here. Have fun, kid, because we don't know how to weaponize it because that's such a crazy idea, but maybe you'll figure it out. And so it just was like, what? So it felt a bit... Um... The last quarter does descend into um, fanfic realms. And I do mean that in the negative way, which is a, is a shame. I think I mentioned earlier, I can't remember about the, the Vickers timeline. It bugged me so much. I'm so confused. And maybe you'll all set me right back on my path. But as far as I can tell, it doesn't make any sense. So I was Googling away. Well, I wasn't Googling away. I was looking on your website, quite frankly. So Meredith Vickers was born in 2057 and died in 2093 after spending two years on the Prometheus, which means that she was there. At 31 years old, she went off and joined her dad and everything else. Now, she was meant to have been made vice president of the company in 2089, which means that in less than two years, not only is she suddenly the VP of this massive company, she's also wondering what her dad's on about with a ship. She's also found this planet, wandered off out there, decided it's a good point, hidden everything behind her, decided it's going to be an outpost and started it all. I'm so lost. Did the book ever say she personally went there, though? Because, I mean, if you're going by the, the kind of viral material for Prometheus, there were quite a few worlds that had been discovered and colonized even at the time of Prometheus. So I wonder if she had just seen something and looked at its statistics and it was like, okay, this is viable rather than personally have traveled. And and maybe that was just part of being a VP, but every director or VP that I know doesn't spend a lot of time looking for secret planets and places that they can put research stations. That's the job of someone cooler. And then the most uh, high up person just gets all the credit for it. So them talking about it being this pet project and how she was so interested in it and she's got all these things set up. I'm thinking in two years, we've been building high speed rail for what, 17 years by now. And we haven't even got to town. It takes five years to get there as well, remember? <laughs> so I'm just... Well, it would have been longer at the time. But yeah, I, I, I get you there. And it did feel weird that they make this this specific secret facility seem so central to their research with the aliens. And again, I thought it was weird with Brenda Moon killing them off before they become adults because they're so dangerous. And then at the end, we get this throwaway line. Oh, yeah, there's also all these other secret alien research facilities. And I'm like, but the book was so focused on this being the most important one. Ramon's like, oh, and here's the bacteria as well. And here's the thing that will cure it. And here's the locations of where it might have been sent to so far. I'm just like, this is not secret. 
This is not a secret. It's being passed around like bubblegum. I did actually love the alien research, though, in this. One of the things I regret not getting to really experience with with Resurrection, you know, was Gediman's lines talking about it's not just the military application, you know, new alloys, new vaccines and stuff like that. And that is one of the things I get really excited about in the EU is the exploration of these other things. One of the reasons I found prototypes so frustrating was because it toyed with them but didn't go any further with them. With this, I actually really like the most the majority of the alien focus was on these other uses the idea of them having this viral agent against the alien it's a nice callback to like i mentioned at the start you know it's a callback or seems to potentially be a callback to labyrinth you know as it got on i kind of felt like it perhaps might be a little bit more related to the black goo than perhaps anything specifically labyrinth but it's the same vibe it's the same same sort of element and i really really enjoyed that it was that was the alien focus you know it wasn't about making these I mean, that might be what they wanted Ramon to do. But the actual research that was taking place, Dr. Brendan Moon, you know, it was about the virus. Although it did sort of veer into being about the xenocytes, which I thought was stupid. <laughs> Not going to lie. The, the image of the tapeworms with the alien bits on them, I thought was a bit uh, a step too far. But the actual, you know, the, the other half of this research being about killing the aliens, I thought was really, really fascinating. And I really liked that that was where it took it rather than making them foot soldiers in something. How did you guys feel about that particular element? I like that they were basically looking for ways to find weaknesses in the aliens, like DNA. So they're they're looking to go past its immune system. So I thought that was cool. But yeah, and then the xenocytes infecting waterways, but they had the antidote to basically kill them all off. It was all right. I mean, that was very evil megacorp mentality. And I liked it as well, because it's like, we'll infect you and then sell you the vaccine. I thought it was um, maybe a bit megalomaniac, but in terms of that sort of corporations equal evil that the EU gets a little bit too heavy into, you know, it, it, it felt right. I kind of agree with you, Aaron, that I, I, I don't like it when they do this, like, oh, here's this crazy new little twist, the alien, like, it kind of reminded me of those little alien, what was it, the tubers from Marvel's second volume? That had no point and made no sense. Yeah, and exactly. And they, they actually said it was like an arthropod hybrid. So yeah, the xenocytes reminded me of that also. Yeah. So it's just like, you're going to use these parasite xenomorphs to just put in people and smuggle them to different planets. I'm like, okay, what happens then? Do they just chest burst like a normal alien? Like, I don't know. Well, wasn't that, that wasn't that the whole point of like the people breaking down thing as well? It did start start to get a little bit murky as to what was related to what later on. Yeah, I think it like oozes out of your orifices. Which is always pleasant. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? How did you feel about the alien experimentation or part of this? For me, I liked the everything that you just talked about, everybody. I completely agree and echo what you were all saying. What I thought was super cool was when, I think it's when they're early on talking about the experiments, they roll a little ball in of the bacteria from a tiny little tube in the ceiling and the Xeno just starts going mental because he can already sense what there is in there. But what I thought was most interesting is when they describe what happens to it. So the blood is no longer acids. And that's, I can't remember the exact word, and this is going to drive me mad, but they basically talk about that it's the neutralization of its acid blood that kills it. I think I had to read it again the other day because I was like, I'm sure I'm misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure that in that part of the book, they basically say that that's the way in which it's killing it is because it's congealing and nullifying the acidic properties within its blood, which is what kills it because it turns its own blood toxic against it. 
and I missed it the first time around when I read it. And the second time around, I was like, there was something around here that kind of like was just niggling in my brain. And I was like, oh, okay, that explains what's actually happening. Because sometimes it's a bit, oh, we're going to release this and, you know, people get funny heads or whatever. But I felt as though it actually did a better job of explaining what happened and why it could be so detrimental to the alien that it was exposed to. That that's that's where I think a lot of you know when we're nerding out, we like these details, we like these pseudo scientific kind of explorations of these fake creatures, and that that's when you know that's when it appeals and and really resonates. So that that's that was a cool moment. Yeah, I I, re- I really enjoyed the Brenda Moon stuff until Utani showed up and fucked it all up. So uh, that that was that was a fun part of it. And then we had Dylan take take him out, uh, like resurrection style. <laughs> Dylan was the one who was infected that broke out. Oh yeah, I don't think I liked the Dylan bit. I think that's when it all sort of started to really fall apart for me because I I had memories of um, I had flashbacks. Sorry, should I say to the guy escaping Bar National in book one and it being a dream because there was no fucking way that was going to happen. So, you know, Brenda Moon had all these really well-in-place security measures that stopped everything, and then this guy fucking basically strolls out of the um, the facility. Although that is something I'm interested in, you know, that kind of where they've modified enough that they can kind of interact with the aliens. You know, I always think of it more as when I play with that kind of scenario in my head for things, I think of it, I tend to go for a chest burst of being in there. But like the idea of the genetic experimentation resulting in it is is an interesting thing. It doesn't work for me in the book, but it's an element that I would quite happily see explored properly in, in some of the other stuff. You know, we 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 can't get that into Charybdis as well. You know, with um with Blue, which is again one of the things I fucking love in that book, but not in here, not in here. It didn't it didn't really gel for me. I found the bit I was looking for. So it's it's not long actually after the first like main focus on Jeanette. So they talk about the um, the orb coming in and the xenomorph going crazy, and it says the projectiles sprayed from the orb to pierce the exterior, so it convulsed as the bacteria invaded its body. It snapped the air as if it was choking, and then its body fell to the ground. The bacteria caused toxic shock in the xenomorph faster than in humans. It could lie there for hours in a delirium as the microscopic invader took over its system. And then Matey Boy comes along to slice bits off it and then take it away in little vials. And Brenda Moon smiles and says, the bacteria had neutralised the acidic blood of the xenomorph, which had led to its death. So I was like, oh, okay. That makes, I mean, it doesn't make 100% sense, but at least it goes some part of the way of going, it's a bacteria, bad for xenomorphs. Off we go. It kind of reminded me of uh, Phalanx to a bit with the with the leaf, the caminous leaf. Yeah, that's a good chat. I hadn't actually thought about that one. Just to deviate back towards characters, one of the things I did actually really like about this was Letitia's journey didn't end in sunshine and roses. You know, she was following in her mother's path. And then when she was like fucked over, she, she went, you know, she said, to you, right, fuck you then. I'm not, I'm not being a part of this establishment if you're not going to play by the, the rules. And I liked the, because life doesn't go to plan. You know, life does not work out the way we all might dream it to be. And that realistic part of her character arc really worked very well for me. I was like, yes, this is real. This is mature. I dig it. 
I really like the camaraderie between her and her fellow writers as well. And yeah, it was kind of a cool curveball seeing her go from being a Marine to private military. You know, private military is usually the bad guys in, in these kind of stories. But she convinces a lot of her other fellow Marines, uh, some that have already left, like, hey, come join me in this thing. Because she's when she's hired, one of the, the requests she makes is that or requirements is that she needs to be able to to recruit her own team because they had worked so well together in the past. So, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting to see her part of Waylon Yutani's private security force here. And, you know, and during the process, she falls in love with the person who hired her, which is interesting. And he is kind of also framed for um, everything that goes down here. And so they're going to be on the run again after this. So I guess with that, you do have kind of a room for a sequel with that setup. Definitely left wide open for a sequel. I don't think I'd want one, but it, it, it was there. What about you guys? How did you feel about that character arc, character trajectory for, for Letitia? I hated all the romances. Every single romance in this I hated. Between everybody, everybody apart from if it was familiar relationships, I hated Is it. this why you didn't like Echo? Was it too heavy on the romance? <laughs> this, is, this is a big part of why I didn't uh, like Echo. And I think, I mean, I could talk about this for ages, about Ramon and his skeevy getting paid for sex with the next door neighbour whose kiddies. It was all just a bit. But if I was going to sum it up, and then let somebody else talk. I would probably say that she's on a perfectly good planet and she's talking about, I want to go see the world and I want to go to all these new places. And she's got this really handsome guy called Avery there for the taking. But no, she wants to wander off because she doesn't want to stay on that planet and do some farming. And then she gets together with someone who wants to go and sit on a planet and do some farming. And I was like, this is this is not a, this is no character development. You've just swapped Avery for Jacob. They want exactly the same thing just because it's a different planet doesn't make the, fam- the farming any more interesting, does it? Jacob had an accent, though, so. <laughs> so very sophisticated British accent. Farming with you, So I guess V Castro, she's originally from America, but she actually lives in England now. So I think that's where she's getting, she has the hots for English guys. <laughs> I, I hear that's the thing American women like, is, is the English accent. But uh, going back to... So that that character arc, I felt like, you know, both Leticia and Ramon, they're they're just trying to make themselves go above their station in life. And, you know, with Leticia, when the Marines didn't work out, the next logical option was this amazing private security offer. So it made sense, I thought. Yeah, that's a good way of actually looking at the journey is getting above their station in life, you know, because that's I think a lot of it's fighting the institution, isn't it? A lot of this book's message is fighting against the hand you dealt. Systematic it's... disadvantages. Yes, that's it. And and that was a part that I did actually genuinely enjoy about the, the journey of these characters is their success in doing it. You know, I might have equated it more to life not working as you plan, but you also tend to try and take those advantages as you are given them as even if you didn't expect them. And yeah, it just, I saw a lot of, I guess I saw a bit of my own character trajectory in there in not being where you expect to be or being in some random, wildly different place. I, I have ended up in a career I avoided. <laughs> when I was when I was training, I was like, oh, there's no point doing this because every fuck is going to be doing it, so I'll never get a job in it. So 
it was a little bit of a thing I enjoyed in terms of seeing myself in there. Now, I've actually ran out of notes. Do you guys have anything specific uh, you want to bring up about the book? Everybody else is checking their notes now. For uh... <laughs> I did think it was kind of fun seeing her and Jacob immediately fall for each other at this like fancy Wayland uh, event or something. And her brother was all like, behave, be cool. And she's all like, screw that. I'm very attracted to this guy. You want to get out of here and go to this crazy dive bar in a bad part of town? Like It was kind of fun. So as silly as the romances were, I thought they did kind of have their moments you know they weren't all bad and they they go to the strip club with the stripper with the robotic leg that can do crazy tricks that was cool cyberpunk vibe yeah yeah definitely yeah that's cyberpunk what do they call that bar in cyberpunk the afterlife right I mean, I went down some rabbit holes reading this book, I'm not going to lie. I got really rabbit holy around the different artists that they were talking about or the different, the way in which they were describing Lorena. I, I went down there. So one of the artists, and I apologise for my pronunciation in advance, I can barely speak English. So I think it was Frioa Kalo, Kalo? Frida Kahlo. Carla, thank you. <laughs> thank you for rescuing me. I was dying there. So uh, what I thought was quite interesting was a lot of the work that she did was self-portraits. And a lot of them were her were self-portraits of her. She, she had some real medical kind of problems throughout her life. And it would show like bits coming out of her. And it made me think about David's drawings quite a lot as well, when they were talking about that type of artwork, which I thought was fascinating because you could see the parallels the ones that they picked was really really smart and i saw some of the imagery from that and that that just really rang true with with a lot of that history that we have through the alien universe as well the other thing that they did is they described the young xenomorph uh, xenomorph as a help me six landro l-l-a-n-d-r-o yandro yeah the, the ll makes a y sound yandro yandro okay and that is a uh, a figurine, and that the the company is a bellflower. Uh, the company emblem, sorry, is a bellflower, which kind of looks like a looks like an alien egg. So I thought that was that was very interesting as well. And the person who originally set up the company and everything else, they actually ended up becoming bigger and joining two companies together, uh, Mitsui, which is a Japanese company, and theirs, which was an American company. And I was like, just look at this. The the, the parallels are incredible. So there was a few things in there that I – there was some more, but I'll get boring. But, yeah, there was a few in there what I thought was was really smart. And really interesting as to what they were referring back to throughout Mexican heritage. They did focus on one piece of future tech, which was the narwhals, which are kind of like jet skis and hover bike hybrids. And uh, they come into play. There's there's a scene when they're just on a mission as part of the Raiders earlier in the book. But these bikes come into play in ultimately defeating the alien queen in the end. Another thing I thought was kind of cool was even though we didn't spend a lot of time on this extrasolar planet in the end, the descriptions of it were pretty cool, how geothermal it was with these pits and everything, which also comes into play in, in their defeat of the aliens. I thought that was an interesting sort of probably unintentional again, but parallel to Prometheus with them filming in Iceland and using it as a very primordial planet. So I thought that I thought that was kind of probably unintentional, but it, it gave me a little bit of a smile. And the imagery of that as well, you know, of this step pyramid coming out of because they terraformed a, a lot of it as well already, hadn't they? You know, it was this jungle-esque place with this step pyramid emerging out of it, then surrounded by all this primordial world. And I just thought it was fantastic. Fantastic imagery. Very AVP.
the pyramid itself was like the facility, right? Yes. So it kind of reminded me of AVP 2010 because you had this like human pyramid shaped facility built over a predator yeah. pyramid. Yeah. And also the the moment where Yutani like tricks this guy into getting infected with a bunch of other people and the aliens like, oh, just go in this room. It'll be okay. You know, don't you trust me or whatever. It reminded me of the clause 88C of your employment agreement is coming to effect in AVP 2010. And I'm like, at least in Aliens Infiltrator, they were smart enough to use the, uh, the convicts, you know. <laughs> now, just to check on when they approach the pyramid, because it's quite a, it's like every room has got its own super special locked door. And it's quite difficult to kind of traverse the laboratory or the facility itself without having 25 different keys and everything else. I suppose there were two things that confused me. Number one, how are the xenomorphs pretty much outside and just roaming around freely to kill Julia and everything else? I know Dylan was just banging buttons left, right and centre, but is that just the cause of it or was there some other kind of failure? And the second part of it is when... Letitia and Ramon and all the her Marines and everything are, are outside of the complex and they see a dropship coming down and a guy steps out in a lab coat. I got a bit confused about whether that's supposed to be Dylan or whether that's supposed to be somebody else. I got a bit lost as to who it was that had gone into a dropship and had three xenomorphs behind them. That was Dylan, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But I was I was confused about the, the door lock bit as well. I think Ramon had this line like, well, if I unlock these doors to get a sun, it's going to unlock everything. Yeah, that was very poor <laughs> writing. I'm not going to lie there. That kind of shorthand, cheaty, dramery kind of setup stuff, I think, is always very disappointing. But you did... It did just make me think of there is some absolutely wonderful descriptive imagery of the hive where they, they refer to it as like as like a church of pain and death or so some words to that effect, which I should have written down, but I didn't. But there's some absolutely wonderful descriptions uh, when they actually got into the hive and there was all this misery and, and birth around them that was really, really well done. And I'll I'll try and find it while you guys talk, actually. What did you what did everybody think of Lorena herself? Because they were said there was three alien queens, two are dead on the floor, and then obviously she had gone some way to heal and work around all the horrible, horrible things that they'd done to her by chopping her arms off and all the stuff you were talking about earlier. Yeah, not only did they sever her limbs to incapacitate her, but they removed like the lower part of her jaw so she couldn't bite. I think she still had her inner jaws. But yeah, Brenda Moon was getting concerned because she was starting to grow back pointed stumps of these appendages, you know, uh, that she could spike people with. But they embedded these like shells that they could detonate in her crown that would have this bacteria that would kill her instantly. But I think those like she formed horns around them or something like that. So it was kind of interesting to see that. Again, it just feels like too much of a time jump happened with the five years where they're just like, it feels like they're instantly there because Brenda Moon was concerned about this happening with the queen. And then it feels like we just pick back up right there with that. I kind of feel like the Brenda Moon sections weren't in chronological order, it, it seemed, because it the first Brenda Moon section came immediately on part two, which would, was when, you know, the kids were born. So I agree with the timeline was kind of shoddy yeah. there. Maybe I'd have to check the dates again because I know some of the chapters did have the dates. And that was another thing. And this kind of goes to things being a little disjointed now with the EU. I think this was around the time where the USCM becomes the UACM. If we're going by Fireteam Elite, if we're counting that as actual lore. So I would have it would have been cool to see mention of that. 
I think one of the, the the things that they talked about as well with Lorena, like having evolved. I mean, timelines all aside, like who knows? Could have been twenty years, could have been twenty minutes. Got no clue. But and I'm not quite sure. As you know, I'm not a gamer. So whereas I have the figures with the new game when they have like the Prowler alien and the Spitter alien and the Jumpy alien or whatever they're called. Uh, all those different xenomorphs. In this one, they talk about her spitting acidic blood. So her inner mandible has become some kind of barbed tongue type dexterous thing. And she also spits acid or spits blood to take people out as well. So I wasn't sure whether that's in line with how the xenomorphs from the game do it, whether there's any lore around that or whether it's just... There's there's always been kind of a difference. I think in the games, you've always had more of a spitter type of alien. And then in the expanded universe, and of course, originally with Resurrection, actually, even with Alien 3, you see the, the alien spit at one point. But yeah, in, in some parts of the expanded universe, it's just some aliens spit acid and it doesn't really explain it or anything. But the games have always tried to make it more of like this is a, its own type of alien. Yeah, which is something I've never really liked in games, to be honest, because I think it's a, a an ability that they should all be able to have. You know, we first saw it in Alien 3, and it's not very clear in that film, but, you know, it was set up as the runner being able to do it. And then, of course, we see it in Resurrection. And I don't think we see it in any other theatrical setting, do we? I don't think so, no. Mm. So it's, it's always been something I think they can all do. The runner alien's my favourite. Oh, the runner aliens are favorite. Yeah, they they were in one of the games, AVP 2010. They were called the the jungle aliens, even though they were the runners, and they were the space spitters. Yeah. Oh, okay. I can't find the exact passage I'm thinking of. Here, here was one that I did like, which was when they kill Julia because she's all hived up and infected and about to burst. Well, no, does burst. Sorry, and somebody puts a bullet in her. Ramon's entire body jerked at the sound of every bullet that echoed in the chamber of life and death, a birthing suite and cemetery at the same time. I do like that one. I mean, I find V a bit all over the place, to be honest, in terms of the, the quality of writing. But moments like that, I really liked. But then there's some real shit dialogue, like we're both military girls made the best person win, which was just, I, I didn't like that piece of dialogue. It was just so random. But yeah. I didn't really elaborate on Lorena as well. I loved that. I thought that was brilliant. It was it was not doing the typical alien thing of an alien comes out of a fucking sloth or something like that. You know, it was it was taking something. It was taking the DNA reflex. It was taking this notion of the alien's adaptability in a different direction. And I thought the idea of her evolving these stumps into weapons of their own, you know, not necessarily regrowing them, which I think Ridley Scott thinks they can do, is is his interpretation of. It was a deleted scene in Alien, you know, where it would have lost, I think it was his tail. It would have grown back. And then um, in Covenant, in the commentary, he said that the alien that got split in two would just grow back again. But no, it it was a a more reasonable and realistic direction to take the adaptability of the alien. And I thought it really worked. And some of this idea of this hive xenomorph Oh, I just said xenomorph. Alien sort of chitin kind of way of these arm spikes was was really interesting. It actually gave me vibes of... Um, you don't like the xenomorph term either? I thought you just didn't like Gacha. I, I like XX. I prefer to think of it as xenomorph XX121. I like it as a generic term for aliens that they discover. It reminded me of some artwork from AVP. There was another company, and I can't remember the name. They pitched 
some wildly different takes on the alien and um, the life cycle and, and the creatures, and uh, it's going to annoy the shit oh, out of me. I know what now. you're talking about. I think that was, wasn't that uh, Patrick Totopoulos that did that artwork? And it had the queen on these like little spike appendages. I know what you're talking yeah. about, some of that earlier AVP art. So that that was what I got sort of vibes of in my imagination while picturing uh, Lorena. There's one real cool scene is basically Muhammad Zessing. They're getting chased by face huggers and he's shooting a flamethrower. And then one of the queen basically stabs him with its two stump hands, barb stumps hands and squeezes and stabs him at the same time. I thought all the Marine death scenes were pretty, pretty good and well written. Yeah, there was there was there was some good deaths in this. To say most of it was not really that that focused on that kind of uh, element of the sci-fi. But when it when it got there, I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it was just a bit too brief, like we have already stated. And I think that for me, the just on the the other Marines, I don't think we've talked about them pretty much at all. And I think that's likely just because they were so flipping forgettable. I thought they were kind of like I don't know. I I kind of liked them as a team. It was interesting because two of them were in a, a relationship together, Nathan and Muhammad, I think. So it was interesting to see that in the same squad. Because that's generally discouraged, I believe. I think they they mentioned that too, but I don't know. That's another one of those things they could chop chalk up to like, oh, it's in the f- the future. Maybe they've relaxed on that, and I guess it's the same thing with Leticia and Jacob. Like he's her employer. Like yeah. But they also make that point. They're like, well, you can't really control people's desires in, in that way. So, Well, I, th- I think it's always been the encouraged carnal act, not necessarily the emotional. And it, it wasn't Patrick Totopoulos, Adam. It was Constantine Circus. Oh, okay. Patrick Totopoulos did do art for AVP, though. He did. I think he did some of the pitch... No, that was Phil Norwood. He did do he did do some of the artwork on on AVP. But yeah, the, the spiked appendage artwork was um, Constantine Circus. Worked on a lot of... A lot of the films, actually. I think he worked on The Predator and Predators and both AVPs and Prey. Sorry. Anything else, guys? I think even though we've all kind of been like middling to lukewarm about this, I'd say, I guess I'd just say if you're just looking for an Aliens action book, I don't know if I'd recommend it. But if you particularly like the character of Jeanette Vasquez, even though this focuses more on our children than her, I think it's worth a read. I just feel like, unfortunately, there were a number of things in terms of the world building aspects and in terms of the conflict with the xenomorph and the focus I would have liked to have been more on on Jeanette Vasquez. But Mm -hmm. it's again, it's not bad. It's worth a read, depending on what you're looking for. I don't see myself revisiting this. Like I, I really enjoyed the Jeanette Vasquez part of it. I wanted more of that. I didn't really, I didn't really get on with Letitia or Ramon. I was, I was more interested in Jeanette. I also wouldn't be interested in seeing them come back. I'd like to see some of the themes and concepts again revisited, but not necessarily these guys. I found it middling. I, I probably won't revisit this one for a long time. Like you guys had mentioned, they do kind of leave it open for a sequel with with the mention of having access to all these different labs where they're doing Xeno research. So if there were to be a sequel, I would just hope that it's much more alien centric. And, you know, now, now that we've got all the character development out of the way, we could just focus on the fun stuff as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, would I read it again? Sure. I actually think I would. And I think the main reason is that even though I've read it twice, the probably the last third of the book, I don't really remember that well, if that makes sense. So maybe it just needs to be a bit of time to go by and then I can, uh, now I know what to expect from the book, that I might pay a bit more attention towards the end. So I would read it again. However, I think I've got three books on the bookcase that are new and I haven't read yet and I would definitely read first. But I could imagine the next six months, I'll probably read this again. And I think a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today about, you know, the social inequities and 
some of the stuff around the hive itself. I think I'd probably spend more time reading that rather than racing through it, which I felt like I was a little bit because I wasn't a big fan of the characters. Whereas this time I can just focus on the other stuff. But I don't think it's a bad book. I think that there are probably four or five that I could name that are worse than this um, in the more recent years. There is an entire run from DH Press that's probably about (laughs) the same level as um, as this, I think. Yeah. Oh, well, no, Steel Eggs. Steel Eggs far worse than this. Steel Eggs down the bottom with uh, Colony War. But, you know, we forgot to bring up the line on your shirt, Sarah, because oh, that was did? kind of uh, significant in the book. El Regreso Siempre Vive? Is that it? El Riesco okay. Siempre Vive. The Risk Always Lives, which was written on Jeanette's armor in the film, or maybe her weapon. Yeah, her, her, yeah, her gun. And that line is kind of carried over to Leticia, who takes on that line as kind of a, a creed herself, I would say. Jeanette got it from her grandmother? Yeah, her grandfather. I can't remember which. It was a, it was a nice like family little motto, I think, which leans a little bit on the fanficy side of the fence, but it was still cool. And I did like seeing that as a uh, as a motto, as as a uh, encouragement for a way of life, I think. And I think as well, it, it was less irritating than it eventually became of how many times they mentioned that bandana. So... Right, before we before we spiral off again then. Thank you everybody for listening or watching. Um Adam, do you want to whore us out? As I'm the one that has sure. to do it on, on Sundays. You can you can do it. You can always find us on our website, avpgalaxy.net, where we have a lot of different features like interviews, editorial pieces, and of course the latest updates on all things Alien and Predator. Also old school message boards where you can talk to us and other fans. And you can also find us on all the major social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course YouTube. So if you'd like to watch these podcasts, we have the video versions on YouTube. Sarah, do you want people to follow you on Twitter? Or- or would you rather them not? Absolutely not. I am the least interesting, <laughs> in, uh, least interesting person on Twitter. So don't look for me there. It's it's a boring place to be. Read Vasquez instead. Much more interesting. <laughs> Ziggs, do you have any place uh, you want to direct vote to? Honestly, the forums is like the only even thing close to social media I do. So everything else I kind of just lurk on. So find me on the forums, Ziggs456, that's me. Mostly in the, the literature board. Yes. You can find me on Twitter, uh, only Twitter, at underscore Corporal Hicks. And that's Alien, Predator, all the nerdy stuff I'm into when I'm feeling sociable. I'm going through a non-sociable phase at the minute, I'll be honest. <laughs> If you'd like to follow me personally, it's just at RidgeTop21 on both Twitter and Instagram. Before we sign off, a bit of just news on the, the Titan books front, I guess. So the most recent Titan book, Alien Enemy of My Enemy, just released digitally. It still hasn't released physically, interestingly enough. Only in the States. I've got a copy on my oh, shelf. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, in the States it comes out this well this week while we're recording. So there are no other new Alien books planned at the moment. However, I think I saw in our forums, it was just announced they're doing another trilogy pack. Interestingly enough, Cold Forge, Prototype, and then Inferno's Fall, which I wouldn't have grouped no. Prototype with those Charybdis. two. Charybdis. Oh, right, right, into Charybdis, that's right. So the two Alex White ones and then Prototype. Which is a weird, I mean, I, I actually quite... I liked Prototype. I thought it was a solid read, but I don't see how it really fits in between those two. But maybe that was release order. I can't quite remember. Yeah, it was. 
there we go then maybe not thematically all relevant to each other but that's the that's the publishing order and it's a good one i think that's a good collection to recommend to people because uh, the cold forge and intercaribdis are damn fine alien novels that will make that one an easy one to say you know if you've got a buddy if you see people on reddit facebook whatever asking about books to get into there's some very convenient omnibuses now that's going to be a thick book, man. That's going to be like that thick. Well, yeah. oh God, yeah, because Charybdis is giant. Charybdis is like 450 pages and Cold Forge isn't short either. Like, Well, Cold Forge was just typical sort of length, but yeah, Charybdis is one of the longest alien novels. Damn. Still a recommended book, uh, Omnibus though, but yeah, that's cool. My mistake. Phalanx came out before Charybdis, so. Ah, but Phalanx is branded aliens, not alien. Wow. Uh, it's AVP now. <laughs> Only the one <laughs> specific short is AVP. But it's aliens versus predators. It's an entirely different branding. Well, I wonder, like, yeah, I, that seems to be the new AVP branding. Like, if Marvel ever launches those comics, if it'll be aliens versus predators. I think that's just a very specific Titan thing. It's a shame there's no new books announced at the minute, but Enemy of My Enemy is up there. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful I'm going to fucking love it because I did really enjoy Inferno's Fall. I'd like the next one to be to be solid as well. We'll see. Come on, Mary Giovanni. We Come still on. We need to get through Rift War because, you know, I like my AVP. The only alien book I've not been able to get through. Have you read it, Ziggs? Yeah. Oh, was it? Honestly, Rift War made Vasquez better for me. Let's just put it that way. Oh, man. It does not fill me with hope. Which is a huge shame because it's co-written by Yvonne Navarro, who did Music of the Spears, which is one of my favorite alien books, and some of the good shorts in the recent anthology. But it, it was also co-written by her husband, who wrote fucking Prototype, and you know how much I hate... Infiltrator. Infiltrator, yes, yeah, sorry, not Prototype. And you know how much I fucking hate that. I hated it much less than you. I think I was kinder to that one. I just, like the character, Honoka just got such a visceral reaction from me. I don't think I've ever hated a fictional character <laughs> as much as I hate Honoka in that book. <laughs> but I think you're right, Aaron. I think it's been a rough past year for Titan. So uh, hopefully we get some new announcements and hopefully they can bring it back a little bit. I'm just thankful the anthologies turned out good. I was going to say, one thing that I would say is that as bad as the books have been, the comics have been worse. So maybe they can take a little win. The third arc wasn't too bad. I think we have a review of that we recently recorded, Aaron. Although I, I have picked up the first issue of the new Predator arc today and I've read it through. I liked it. I thought it was off to a good start. Although it, it did end the way I hoped it wouldn't end. That was very stereotypical and I, I think doubling down on some you of the... come with me if you want to live. The whole issue, I was waiting for Theta to show up and save them. And then through most of the issue, it's like, Yep, the fucking predators are on it. They're actually they're actually being, you know, deadly. Maybe they've taken on some of the criticism. And then I was like, just please don't make Theta show up, kill the guy, <laughs> and go from that way. And that is exactly how that issue ends, with the predator's face blowing up and Theta doing Arnie's come with me Boy, if you want to cool. live. It'll be long out by the time this episode comes <laughs> That's out. That's true. Yeah, good point. Yeah. But anyway, we digress already, as we always do. But yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Ziggs, for coming to join us and yeah, talking nice. about. It's nice to have some other voices on this show other than just me and Adam. So it's very much appreciated. Everybody out there, if you've got any comments, uh, you want to drop us any feedback, you know, you can email us at podcast at avpgalaxy.net. You can always comment on the video, on the forums, on the social posts. And if you are listening to this on a place like iTunes that allows reviews, please do, because it helps our visibility 
and all the bloody algorithms and all that sort of stuff, the more we commented on, the more we reviewed. Same for YouTube. You know, it just helps other fans find us. And if you know uh, other people out there who might be interested in in hearing our thoughts or hearing some of our other uh, interview episodes, please do share us with those guys and uh, help us, you know, help us reach more fans. This has been Corporal Hicks. Ridgetop. Ziggs. Sarah. Signing off. Although maybe I should start to think of thematic uh, ends for these as well as uh, the intros that I'm going for at the minute. But thank you, everybody.